Hear that? It's the call of the Crave. And when the Crave calls, you know what to do. Try the $5 Bacon Bundle, because the only thing better than a White Castle slider is a White Castle slider topped with crispy hickory smoked bacon. So pick any two of either the Bacon Cheese Slider, 1921 Bacon Cheese Slider, or Chicken Bacon Ranch Slider, and also get a small fry for just $5 with the $5 Bacon Bundle. White Castle. Follow your Crave. This is a big year. The Ohio Lottery's golden anniversary. 50 years of excitement, of growing jackpots and crossed fingers. 50 years of funding for schools, of changed lives and brightened days. 50 years of fun. And that is worth celebrating. So watch for can't-miss promotions, huge events, and new games that will make the Ohio Lottery's 50th year its biggest one yet. Learn more at funturns50.com. It's no secret that most New Yorkers are deeply opinionated and happy to share their thoughts about the city with just about anyone, just about anywhere, and just about any time. There are three particular subjects that seem to come up most often. Where to find the very best takeout, thoughts on how best to navigate the subway from which lines to take to exactly where to stand when the doors open to be closest to the stairs, And lastly, and perhaps the biggest subject of all, New York real estate. You can have a pretty in-depth conversation with just about any New Yorker that you met five minutes ago, no matter how long they've lived in the city, about where to live, where not to live, and most importantly of all, just how much it's going to cost. If you polled the most passionate readers of the New York Times, I bet that most would tell you that they never consider this Sunday New York Times completely read until they give at least a cursory glance through the real estate section. Well, my listeners, the New York passion for real estate is just nothing new. And in the Gilded Age, as the city was rapidly expanding and moving quickly up the island of Manhattan, conversations about where to live, why it was desirable to live in any given location, and how much it was going to cost were constant subjects of discussion amidst leather chairs and cigar smoke and whiskeys at Delmonico's Bar. This episode looks at five specific mansions of the Gilded Age in five specific locations around the island of Manhattan, from what we call Midtown today to the Upper West Side along Riverside Drive, and even up into Harlem, and will end on the Upper East Side. The stories of these mansions, where they were built, why they were built, and just who lived in them, all encompass what one could say were equal parts money and sometimes madness. As my guest today, returning listener favorite historian Keith Talion, will share that then is now, while it was all about location, 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 there was often quite a bit more to the story. Hello, I'm Carl Raymond, the host of the Gilded Gentleman History Podcast, where every other week we delve into worlds light and dark of America's Gilded Age, France's Belle Epoque, and England's late Victorian and Edwardian eras. John Jacob Astor, the great patriarch of the Gilded Age fortune, was, one could say, New York's first real estate mogul. He began to build his extravagant fortune as a fur trader not long after he arrived in the late 1700s, but quickly realized, as most moguls do, that it was what was to come and to be part of the city's future that was the thing that was going to make him really, really rich. Astor began to buy up tracts of land and as the city developed became, along with Trinity Church, a significant holder of real estate on Manhattan Island. But as Manhattan grew, other speculators, investors, and developers proliferated buying and selling land and creating what was billed as the next desirable neighborhood in which to live. Some of them worked, and some, well, didn't quite meet the developers' expectations. 
joining me to look at all of this today and to concentrate on five specific stories that give some sense of the range of how neighborhoods rose and fell from the middle of the 19th century to the early years of the 20th century is my returning guest, historian Keith Talyon. Keith joined me for an episode back in the spring in which he detailed just how New Yorkers chased the gold up the island of Manhattan throughout the 19th century. I am so excited and so honored to have Keith back on the show to delve much more deeply into this story. Keith Talion is a historian and writer based here in New York City. He holds degrees in history and urban planning and graduated from Hunter College with a master's degree in 2019. He is a contributing writer for the Daily Beast and has been a guest lecturer for the Cooper Hewitt Museum, City College, and the National Arts Club. He has been profiled in the press by Condé Nast, The Times of London, El Decor, and The New Yorker. Keith is also a licensed New York City tour guide and currently leads public and private tours of his favorite corners of New York City through his own tour company. His truly brilliant Instagram account, at Keith York City, has over 50,000 deeply passionate followers, and I encourage all my listeners to follow him there. Gosh, Keith, I am so happy to have you back on The Gilded Gentleman. It is so nice to be back. Very happy to be talking to you. I'm always happy to find an opportunity to talk to you. And we just knew we had so much more to talk about after the last show, right? We barely scratched the surface. I know. Well, we're going to go deeper today. So for our Gilded Age real estate show, as I've said, we're going to look at five mansions roughly from about the 1850s or so through the very early 1900s. And each has a very specific location on the island of Manhattan. And let's remember, listeners, that New York was predominantly the island of Manhattan until 1898 when the boroughs consolidated. And in addition to each particular location of each particular mansion, we'll talk about its architecture. And perhaps what's most fun of all is to talk about who the owners were. And I promise you, my listeners... There are truly some tales of money, certainly mansions, and madness of sorts. And I will note that each of these mansions, with the exception of one, can still be seen today. So, Keith, let's begin our story in the 1850s, thereabout. And the neighborhood we're going to look at is Madison Avenue and Fifth Avenue in the 30s. So roughly the area around today's Empire State Building. So can you talk a little bit about where the city was in the early 1850s and why homes that were built there would have been desirable? Yeah, as we talked about a lot in my last visit to your podcast, uh, in the early 1850s, the city's population was growing really rapidly. And as the population grew, the physical footprint of the city crept up and up the island ever further. So by the early 1850s, that population had swelled numerically to somewhere in the neighborhood of 800 or 900,000 people just on the island of Manhattan. Most of them were crowded down below 26th, maybe 30th Street around the area of Madison Square. That was really the northern limits of the city. But as the population continued to grow and wealthy families were looking for ever newer, uh, more staid and exclusive places to set up their domestic lives, they pushed north of Madison Square into into the neighborhood known as Murray Hill, which historically encompassed pretty much everything east of Fifth Avenue from about 26th to about 42nd Street. And so that, beginning in the early 1850s, really rapidly began to fill up with some of the grandest and most expensive mansions and rows of townhouses in the entire city. So let's look at our first mansion. So the location is Madison Avenue between 36 and 37th Street. So it's today the site of the Morgan Library, which is indeed part of the story here, which we'll get to. But there were once three mansions here, but now only one survives. What happened here? What happened on that block? Yeah, there were actually four. 
on that block. There were three mansions facing Madison Avenue between 36th and 37th, and there was actually a fourth mansion tucked behind uh, one of those mansions on 36th Street. And the whole complex had been developed almost all at once in the early 1850s, around 1852, 1853, mostly by the Phelps and Stokes families. I believe the Dodge family was involved as well. It was a lot of distant relations in this family tree, um, all descending from an early uh, immigrant ancestor by the name of Phelps. This family got very wealthy in mostly the metals trading market economy. And they, in the early 1850s, as families like the Astors began to push north of Madison Square into Murray Hill, the Phelps, Stokes, and Dodge family essentially built a compound for themselves on this block hemmed in by Madison Avenue, 4th Avenue, or Park Avenue, and 36th and 37th Street. So with those four houses and their attendant carriage houses, that was that family's little fiefdom in the middle of Murray Hill. So what's interesting to me about that is that's probably pretty typical of families moving from way downtown, moving up at this point, correct? Correct. Generation by generation, they made their way further and further up the island and led chiefly by the Astros arriving over on Fifth Avenue around 33rd and 34th Street. Many wealthy heirs, heiresses, and, and family units made their way into Murray Hill pretty much all at the same time in that decade, decade and a half between 1850 and the American Civil War in the 1860s. So can you talk a little bit about the architecture of these houses, or at least the one that we see today, which we'll get to in a, in a minute? Yeah, each of the houses built there between 36th and 37th Street, as was typical of mansions in the 1850s, would have been built in some semblance of an Italianate style. The Italianate style was first popularized in England in the very early 19th century and got brought over to the United States beginning really in the 1830s and 1840s. And Italianate style, as the name implies, is a derivative of sort of a Renaissance Italian palace style, like a palazzo style, usually characterized by a flat roof, very ornate cornice work and brackets holding the cornice up, as well as often very elaborate uh, window surrounds carved out of stone. And specifically, these houses unique, you know, not Italian in nature at all. These houses were built with brownstone facades, brownstone being a very popular building material for New York City through most of the 19th century. Can you talk a little more about brownstone? Because that's so interesting. In the early, say, what, quarter of the 19th century, and particularly downtown, you can still see them today, we have the Greek Revival and we have the brick. It's a very sort of neoclassical look. But then we have, as you just mentioned, the Italian style, but it's brownstone. Why was brownstone everywhere you looked? In the simplest terms, brownstone is a very soft, porous sandstone that in the 19th century was chiefly quarried in central Connecticut. It was used widely in sections of New England where it was accessible, but it didn't become accessible to New York until a rail connection was built from New York City to the quarry sometime around 1840. Once that rail connection was built between New York and central Connecticut and that brownstone quarry, this relatively inexpensive, relatively light and easy to work with stone was flooding the New York City construction market because wealthy homeowners like to use it in place of marble, granite, or limestone because it was cheaper, softer, easier to carve motifs out of. And for speculative developers, it was very attractive to use brownstone because they could slap a three or four inch layer of brownstone on the front of a brick townhouse and make it look much more valuable than it really was. And they could then sell it for a higher price. So all that is to say that brownstone in the 1840s just exploded on the New York City market and everything built between the early 1840s and about 1880 in that 40-year period when, remember, the city's population was just growing exponentially. Just about everything, the houses, churches, schools, they were all being built either of brownstone or using a brownstone facade. So these were very typical houses. And as the great Edith Wharton said, and I often quote her, she hated the brownstones mm -hmm. and said it looked like New York was being covered with a cold chocolate sauce. Mm -hmm. It's just fascinating because they all looked alike, right? Everything looked alike. Right. Which was attractive up to a point. I think uh, New Yorkers blinked and woke up and found that their entire city was this dark, depressing brown color mixed with dirty streets and polluted air. The entire city was brown, which is part of the reason why brownstone fell from favor beginning in the 1880s. Now, speaking of the 1880s and going back to our little block here, in the 1880s, J.P. Morgan enters the story and he took up 
residents in what was once the Phelps and Stokes block here. Can you talk a little bit about that and why would have been desirable for him, who with his incredible amounts of money, why would have been interesting for him at that time to build, well, not build, but to buy right there? Yeah, the distinction between buying and building is really great there because in the Gilded Age, J.P. Morgan or Pierpont Morgan would have been considered new money. He and his father got rich in Wall Street and banking and speculation. They were not of the crowd of old money people like the Astors, like the DePasters and the Van Rensselaers and so on. So by choosing to buy an old house on Murray Hill rather than build a giant chateau or castle up, you know, where the Vanderbilts were living north of 42nd Street, Pierpont Morgan or J.P. Morgan Sr. was really making a statement that he wanted to be more like old money. He wanted to prove that he had not only the credentials, but the taste to live in a more staid, respectable, old-fashioned neighborhood. That's not to say he didn't make massive renovations to the house when he moved in in the early 1880s, but he was making a decision not to move where the new money was going, but rather to buy into the old money neighborhood of Murray Hill. Now, one of the interesting things about J.P. Morgan's own house, that has been demolished. That is no longer there. And it is part of his great library that he then went on to build. But the house that we do see today was actually taken over by J.P. Morgan's son, right, J.P. Morgan Jr. Can you talk a little bit about that house? And actually, we can even see the interior of that today, right? Correct. Yeah, to an extent. The footprint of where the Phelps-Stokes-Dodge family home compound once was, as built in the 1850s, is now essentially the footprint of what's the Morgan Library and Museum. I mean, the Morgan Library and Museum, as it exists today, is really four structures. There's, of course, the library itself, that jewel box building made of very white limestone uh, designed by Charles Fallon McKim. It stands just east of Madison Avenue on 36th Street. That's the original library as built by and for Pierpont Morgan or J.P. Morgan Sr. When Pierpont Morgan died in 1913, his will called for his home, that old brownstone mansion that he bought and lived in uh, at the corner of 36th and Madison. It called for that mansion to be torn down and replaced by a gallery expansion for the library. And so that was completed only in 1928. And that's the the very white limestone blank wall building that you see at the corner of 36th and Madison today. At the opposite corner at 37th and Madison is the mansion that you're talking about. So that is the last surviving of the four mansions built by the Phelps Stokes Dodge family. And it stands at the southeast corner of 37th and Madison. And that was purchased by Pierpont Morgan for his son, J.P. Morgan Jr., um, as an interesting aside, Pierpont Morgan also bought the middle house on of the three that lined Madison Avenue there on the east side and simply had it demolished and turned into a garden that he and his son could share in between the two, which is just outrageous to me that an entire house was purchased and torn down for a garden. But to make a long story short, Pierpont Morgan or J.P. Morgan Sr. lived in the Brownstone Mansion at 36th and Madison, and he purchased the similar Brownstone Mansion at 37th and Madison for his son, J.P. Morgan Jr., Now, when you go into the Morgan Library today, there's a very modern atrium and entrance, which was created not that long ago by Renzo Piano. However, you can go into the gift shop, which is quite extensive, and that was actually part or is part of the mansion, the original mansion for J.P. Morgan Jr., which I love to do. You can actually see the entrance hall, the staircase. Part of the gift shop is actually part of the ballroom. So if anybody's looking for a little bit of Gilded Age, you can go there, right? Absolutely. The wood paneling and the gilding in the gift shop of the Morgan Library is really just incredible. I I like to remind people it's one of the only places that you can actually stand inside a freestanding mansion. The term mansion is thrown around kind of willy-nilly in today's uh, parlance, but When talking about mansions of the Gilded Age, this is one of the last true mansions that you can actually enter. Now, J.P. Morgan Jr. died in 1943. So what happened to the house following his death? And how did we get to the point of it finally being a designated landmark? Because it sounds like that was kind of a battle. 
Correct. When J.P. Morgan Jr. died in 1943, his home was taken over by the United Lutheran Church in America to function as their headquarters, which it did into the 1980s. But there was a drama in the midst of their ownership because in 1965, the newly formed New York Landmarks Preservation Commission did in fact landmark the mansion, which would have prevented the Lutheran Church from making any alterations to it or, God forbid, tearing it down. But what happened was the Lutheran Church filed a lawsuit to try to strip the house of its landmark status because they wanted to tear down the mansion and put up a new office tower to house their headquarters and to make money for the church. Um, And they were actually successful in this lawsuit up to a point, and they did get the landmark status of the house stripped away, but they did not get the zoning regulations changed for the plot of land that the house sits on, and so they ultimately were not able to tear down the mansion, um, which is good for historical purposes, and ultimately in the late 1980s, they sold the house to the Morgan Library and Museum, which is when the house was folded into the larger complex, bringing the Morgan House together with the Morgan Library once again. And we got landmark status finally again. Correct. I believe it was 2002, if I'm remembering correctly. Yeah. Now, when you look at this whole complex and this really rich story that we have just on that block, what do you find particularly significant about that in telling the story or understanding the story of New York City real estate? From a real estate perspective, I love showing the Brownstone Mansion at the Morgan Library because It's very easy to talk about the scale of life during the Gilded Age, but so few of the mansions that were typical of the way that the ultra-wealthy were living at this time still stand. And so when I take tour groups, or even when I just walk by on my own, seeing the actual physical presence of this house is really kind of overwhelming. When you realize that this house is truly massive, um, it stretches very far back along 37th Street, and just the scale of life at the time was extraordinary. And you don't get to see that in a meaningful way in many other places in Manhattan. And with that, Keith and I are going to take a short break, but we will be back to continue our story. Jake from State Farm here, hanging out with Mel's Mowing Grow. Mel chose State Farm for small business insurance because his local agent is a small business owner, too. So she knew how to help him personalize his policies. And now he's rolling in the green. Like a... Like a good neighbor? Guys, I'm trying to do the line. Oh, sorry, Jake. It's all good. Like a good neighbor? State Farm is there. Talk to an agent today. This is a big year. The Ohio Lottery's golden anniversary. 50 years of excitement, of growing jackpots and crossed fingers. 50 years of funding for schools, of changed lives and brightened days. 50 years of fun, and that is worth celebrating. So watch for can't-miss promotions, huge events, and new games that will make the Ohio Lottery's 50th year its biggest one yet. Learn more at funturns50.com. Want to connect with a family member who doesn't speak your language? Then check out the language learning program Rosetta Stone on desktop or as an app. Rosetta Stone is designed to immerse you in the language you're learning through an intuitive process. Plus, the True Accent feature even gives you feedback on your pronunciation. And with a lifetime membership, you have access to all 25 offered languages. Get started today. Visit rosettastone.com backslash pod 50 to get 50% off your lifetime membership now. That's rosettastone.com backslash pod 50 for 50% off. And we're back. I'm Carl Raymond, the host of the Gilded Gentleman History Podcast, and I'm with historian Keith Talion, and we are looking at Gilded Age New York real estate. Now, Keith, we're going to move uptown just a little bit. This is a story that really blends old and new New York, and it's a real real estate story. Uh, so our next mansion, sadly, is is gone today. So this is the one that you can't see today. But the story of the family that owned it and lived there is almost more fascinating. And it was the Wendell family. Now, this mansion was really just a few blocks north of the Morgan houses, but it was over on the corner of Fifth Avenue and 39th Street. So that would the address would have been 442 Fifth Avenue. Can you share anything about this particular location in the 1850s or so? What did this mean? Yeah, in the 1850s and through the 1880s, this location where the Wendell family lived at 39th and 5th 
would have been directly in the middle of the very highest echelons of Gilded Age society. We're talking just blocks away from the Phelps, Dodge, Stokes families, then the Morgans, as well as the Astors a few blocks below them, as well as the Vanderbilts just across Fifth Avenue before they made their move up to Vanderbilt Row north of 42nd Street. This was truly the heart of the heart of high society during the Gilded Age. Now, style-wise... This mansion was was similar, more or less, to the the Morgan House, right? We had brownstone and some Italianate influences. But when I was looking at photographs of it, I was really struck because this seems to be a combination of brownstone and brick. Can you make any commentary about that? Was that typical? Was that unique? What about that? I would say it was somewhat typical because brownstone in the 1850s was still a relatively new material stylistically, as well as its ease of acquisition. So many people, wealthy families through developers, would often mix old materials with new materials like brownstone to achieve something modern or unique to the family's taste. And so you'll see this on some surviving 1840s townhouses around Gramercy Park, where you've got a brownstone base with brick above. Um, It was very typical to apply brownstone in moderation before it truly arrived on the scene as as a full brown wash material in the 1870s and 80s. Now, this mansion was built by John D. Wendell. Can you talk about just who he was? Because speaking of real estate, we have some Astor connections here, right? Who was John Wendell? Yeah, there were a lot of John Wendells. It can get a little confusing when studying the family, which generation was which. But the Wendell family started with John Gottlieb Wendell, who worked with the original Johann Jakob or John Jacob Astor as a furrier. And interestingly, what what it seems to have been the exchange here was that John Jacob Astor worked in the fur business with John Gottlieb Wendell. And then John Jacob Astor, who, as you mentioned before, as he got into real estate, he got John Gottlieb Wendell to likewise go into real estate. And so these two patriarchs kind of moved ahead together as in an economic ascent. But that was John Gottlieb Wendell. John D. Wendell, who built the mansion that we're talking about now, was his son. John Gottlieb Wendell actually was so close to John Jacob Astor that he married one of Astor's half-sisters. And so all of the Wendells from there on in the family tree had at least some Astor blood in them, and there was a lot of closeness. But other than familial connections, there was not a whole lot in common between the Astors and the Wendells, as we'll discuss. So John Wendell has built this mansion in the appropriate neighborhood, desirable neighborhood, as we have discussed. But after his death and the death of his wife, Mary, the house passes to his son, John Gottlieb II, who lives in the house with his six sisters. And it seems he was just a little eccentric, and the family actually became known as the Weird Wendells. Can you talk about that? Why were they so weird? Correct. So, and just to keep the the John Wendells straight here, John Gottlieb Wendell was the family patriarch. It was his son, John D. Wendell, for whom this mansion was built at 39th and 5th. So we're already down to the second generation. John D. Wendell had eight children, and he and the rest of the family were extremely not only frugal, but extremely protective of their real estate interests. While they bought a lot of land, just as the Astors had done, the Wendells were far more fastidious about protecting their interests. They had a family motto that was essentially, we don't sell property. We acquire, but we never sell. They also had a lot of very archaic rules about what kind of businesses could be built on land that they owned. No bars, no saloons, no liquor stores. They also refused to allow neon on any of the buildings that uh, were built on land that they owned. It was a very old-fashioned and very protective way of running a real estate empire that was arguably one of the largest and most valuable in the city, if not the entire country. I think that's fascinating that for many people, they've never heard of this family, yet they were very powerful, very significant landowners in the 19th century and certainly in the Gilded Age, right? Yeah, they were, by some metrics at a certain time, they owned more real estate and more valuable real estate than even the Astor family. It was simply the way that they chose to protect and operate that real estate empire that made them less, ultimately less wealthy and definitely less famous to history. Now, one of the reasons I think they are often called the weird Wendells is the way John lived in the house with his 
siblings. Mm-hmm. It was almost a sort of Miss Havisham sort of thing, correct? They didn't update their furniture. They didn't update the interiors. They wore the same clothes they weren't for years. Can you talk a little bit about this? It seems almost miserly. Is that right? Absolutely. When John D. Wendell died, I believe, in 1876, and then his wife died in the early 1890s, with them gone, the eight children carried on their father's legacy of frugality beyond the norm. The siblings, who seven sisters and one brother, though one of the sisters died the same year as the father. So there were really six sisters and this brother, John Gottlieb Jr., living in this house. They refused to make any updates. They really didn't spend money if they could help it at all. They waited for sales. They went shopping in person and refused to allow porters to carry the goods back to their home. They did everything for themselves despite being some of the wealthiest people in the city. And like you said, they didn't update their wardrobes. I believe when John Gottlieb Jr. died, uh, he left a real estate empire worth something like $10 million and his wardrobe was worth $10. So it was that disconnect of hoarding real estate wealth but not at all doing anything to maintain the kind of lifestyle that one would expect from a family so wealthy in such an exclusive neighborhood. Which is a complete antithesis to the Gilded Age, right? Because that was all about being ostentatious and showing off, and they certainly did not. Now, one of the really curious things is it seems like John did not really like his sisters to leave the family. And one of them, Georgiana, I think, actually tried to escape from the house, right? Can you tell that story? Yeah. So the the idea that daughters should not be part of a family financial empire is not unique to the Wendells. You see this in the Vanderbilts. You see this in the Astors. There was a very unfair belief that daughters essentially killed off the family name. When a daughter married another man, not only did she remove herself from the family tree, but it was felt that it was her responsibility to marry well and therefore be financially supported by the husband and or his family. And so in the Wendell family, that belief was taken to the extreme and the sisters were essentially forbidden from marrying outside the family. One sister did ultimately marry outside of the family. One sister, Georgiana, actually did, as you mentioned, run away around 1900 and she tried to take up residence in a hotel in the city and and assert her independence. And in response, her brother, John Gottlieb Jr., who was ruling over the family at this point, attempted to have her committed as insane and was successful up to a point, had her committed at Bellevue Hospital. Now, they were a very private family. We don't know a whole lot of details about Georgiana, what her reasons for running away were. Ultimately, she was released from Bellevue and went back into the care of the family, went back to the home at 39th and 5th, where she lived out the rest of her life. But as you just said, one of the daughters did actually marry. This is Rebecca, right? Around 1912. So she did marry. So somebody got away. Yes, she married a Professor Swope. And even for her, it was rather late in life, but she did successfully get away. She was not committed to Bellevue like her poor sister Georgiana. But Rebecca, by marrying out of the family and by having her name changed, did give up any claim that she had to the Wendell family fortune, but she seems to have lived lived quite a good life for herself. She and Professor Swope uh, moved into a beautiful townhouse on Central Park West that you can actually still see today at the corner of 85th Street and Central Park West, this very elaborate kind of Queen Anne Italianate mix of a house with a little turret on the corner, all in red brick and brownstone, is still standing there. And that's where the one Wendell sister that escaped from Murray Hill lived out the rest of her life. So John dies in 1914. Now, by this point, this plot of land that the house is sitting on is getting very, very valuable. And finally, the last sister, everyone has died off except this last sister, Ella, correct? Mm -hmm. And she dies in 1931. So what do we know about the Wendell fortune at that point? What happened to it? What happened to this land and what happened to this house because it's gone yeah the last two sisters to survive were actually rebecca who i just talked about she was the one that married out of the family and the last sister to survive was ella ella lived alone in the house at 39th and 5th she would could be seen walking her poodles around the garden around the mansion but as you mentioned by the time she was near the end of her life Murray Hill, the whole area around their home, had become exponentially more valuable, but also exponentially more commercially developed. Um, To give you some idea, their home sat directly across the street from Lord and Taylor. 
just a couple blocks away was Tiffany and Company and Arnold Constable's department store, as well as B. Altman, a couple blocks to the west, was Macy's and Gimbel's and Saks, as well as Penn Station. This was a very busy and rapidly developing district, and the Wendells simply refused to give up their home. And so what happened to the money? Almost ironically, considering how protective they were about keeping the money in the Wendell family, because none of the Wendell siblings got married or had kids, the money didn't have anywhere to go once Ella passed away in 1931. So the majority of their fortune, including their home, was gifted through Ella's will to the Drew Theological Seminary in New Jersey, expecting them to use the house as some kind of a religious outreach center or something to otherwise support the seminary's mission. But Again, almost ironically, the Drew Theological Seminary didn't actually have any need for the Wendell Mansion, and they instead chose to finally sell the home and its land to a developer who put up a a five-and-dime called the Cress Store, something akin to a Woolworths on that site, which stood there into the mid-late 20th century when it was replaced by a skyscraper. Now, that house is gone, sadly, but there is a rather unique memorial to the Wendells and their house that is still there if one knows where to look for it. We were talking about this the other day. Could you share with listeners what that is? Yes. So on the west side of Fifth Avenue, just north of 39th Street, there's a little nook cut into the side of the tower that's there. It's fully lined with bronze. And if you look at that bronze plaque, there is a picture of the Wendell home and a whole dedication to the Wendell family, including specifically Rebecca and Ella, the last two sisters to to survive, commemorating their gift of the home to the Drew Theological Seminary. So you can get an idea, one, of where the home was located, but you actually can see what the house would have looked like on the plaque that still stands there today. To me, it's just such another wonderful example of there's so much here in New York City if you just know where to look for it, right? Mm -hmm. Now we're going to go really uptown here and we're going to land in the early 20th century, now really the early 1900s. And we're going to go to what is today's Upper West Side in sort of the hundreds on Riverside Drive. Now this was a really hot area of development at the time. Can you talk about why and what was so attractive about it and just who was moving here? The Upper West Side kind of lagged behind in development when compared to the Upper East Side. The Upper East Side, just almost by geographic accident, tended to develop first. Fifth Avenue and Madison Avenue were just where wealthy people were used to living. And so as the city grew, they just pushed their way further and further up Fifth and Madison Avenue. Developers recognized that wealthy families might want an alternative to 5th and Madison Avenue and so built around a much larger project, which was a kind of improvement concept for the for the west side of the island, um, wherein the city and the parks department and whatnot built a new park and drive along the west side of the island. It began to percolate among developers' minds that the west side of the island could become that alternative to allow wealthy people to live somewhere away from 5th and Madison Avenue, almost creating a new center for gilded society, and that was Riverside Drive. Can you talk a little bit about Riverside Drive, what it looked like for for those who are not New Yorkers? I love Riverside Drive. I live very near it. And it was really a revelation at that time, along with Central Park. Here was another park, another place to get air. Can you talk a little bit about that? Yeah, Riverside Drive went against everything that the New York City grid stood for. The grid was meant to be unforgiving to nature. The grid, if you're not if you're not totally familiar with Manhattan's grid system, it was conceived all the way back in 1811 and gave us the very straight avenues and streets that define most of Manhattan north of Houston Street today. Riverside Drive is everything that the grid is not. It is curvy. It's undulating. It follows the topography of the west side overlooking the Hudson River, giving really dramatic vistas as well as a sense of surprise and unexpected views as you walk up and down or drive up and down Riverside Drive. And this, especially, it's important to note that Riverside Drive was laid out between the 1870s and 1890s at a time when leisurely carriage driving was a very popular sport among the wealthy class in New York. And so giving them a picturesque, curving street to drive their carriages and their fine horses up and down and to be seen by all of their other you know, horse riding friends, this was a very attractive thoroughfare, real estate notwithstanding, 
as a street alone, it was a very attractive destination. Now, there are still a few of the mansions from the Gilded Age that are visible today. One is actually very near where I live, and that's the 1902 Robert Davis Mansion. It's 330 Riverside Drive. Now, architecturally, This was a whole different story from the brownstones that we've just been talking about. And of course, it was built 50 years later. So now we're in in 1902. But can you describe just the look of this mansion and the architectural style? Because now we're getting a little French now, right? We're we're beyond the Italian. Can you talk about this? Yes. uh, 50 years is a world of difference in architectural development in Manhattan. And so this Davis house at the corner of 105th Street and Riverside Drive is all in on the chateauesque style and the French Beaux-Arts style. It's far more elaborate and far more ostentatious than anything you would have seen in the years leading up to the Civil War in the Wendell or the uh, Phelps uh, Stokes houses down on Murray Hill. This house is made of limestone and light brick. By this point, we've moved beyond brownstone. Importantly, as we talked about with Edith Wharton, people had really tired of the dark, heavy color of brownstone. We're looking for something lighter. And so you see that reflected in the Davis house in these very almost white bricks set off by very light stone in all of the elaboration on the house. Now, the builder of this house was a gentleman named Joseph Farley, which is a name I certainly didn't know, and I'm assuming many of my listeners certainly don't know today. Can you share anything about him? What do we know about Joseph Farley? What we know about Joseph Farley is he was a highly prolific developer on the Upper West Side, specifically in the Upper West Side, but he had projects elsewhere. But he was one of a number of speculative developers at the turn of the 20th century trying to take advantage of the city's growth, trying to get ahead of the growth curve and provide houses that would be ready and available for sale when people decided to move up to these newly opened areas. Now, the issue for Joseph is that he overexerted himself specifically in this development because not only did he build 330 Riverside Drive, the home that we're talking about, but he built it as the end cap of a row of four similar mansions between 105th and 106th Street, all completed around 1902. And there simply was not a demand for these houses immediately. Beautiful as they were, well-situated as they were, there weren't enough wealthy people looking to move that far uptown quite yet. And so the houses sat on the market for most of the rest of 1902 and actually led to to Joseph Farley's bankruptcy. And he lost the houses financially because he couldn't find buyers. And I think this is really interesting because now we're seeing a shift here. This is very different from somebody who's very wealthy, who buys a plot of land and decides to build their own house wherever they choose to build it. Now we have things bought and built on spec, right? Mm Mm-hmm. And it doesn't always work. Correct. Yeah, this was a business tactic. I mean, this is no different than playing the stock market, but you're doing it with brick and mortar. Um, These speculative developers would build whole rows of townhouses or they'd build rows of mansions, just trying to anticipate where people would want to live. And it really didn't always work in their favor. Now, 330 Riverside Drive, the Davis Mansion that we're talking about, one of the things I find really curious about this is that the entrance is not on Riverside Drive, despite the fact that's its address. The actual entrance is on 105th Street. And it seems like this is an old New York trick. Can you talk about that, what your address was and where your entrance actually was? Wasn't always the same thing. What was that about? It was really a matter of taste for wealthy people to decide, one, where to build the entrance on their home if they had that choice, but also which address to use if they were so fortunate and so wealthy to have a corner lot. Um, You see this reflected in other mansions around the city, like the Morton Plant Mansion, which is now the Cartier store down in Midtown on Fifth Avenue. While it sits on Fifth Avenue, Plant chose to have his entrance built on 52nd Street and take the 52nd Street address. The reason I point that out is that it really was a matter of taste whether you took the avenue address, which was more ostentatious, almost a brag, or you took the side street address, which if people knew and understood real estate, they would know that for instance, let's I'll just throw it an address out there to East 70th Street. Someone who understands addresses would know that you were actually on Fifth Avenue and you were just too refined to brag that you were on Fifth Avenue. And so this home at 330 Riverside Drive, while the entrance is demurely set around the corner on 105th Street, did in fact take the 330 Riverside Drive address, which would have been much more 
of a feather in one's cap, so to speak. Certainly a statement of you lived on Riverside Drive, right? So this mansion was bought by Robert Benson Davis, who made a fortune out of baking powder. Yes, my listeners, baking powder. And I encourage you to go into your kitchen right now and look at your baking powder because you likely have Davis baking powder on your shelves today. But it seems that there was a bit of a curious story of maybe madness or imagined madness here in the Davis mansion. This is really a convoluted story. Can you share a little bit about the Davises and what went on there? Yeah, there was drama behind the doors of the Robert Benson Davis household, as was typical in a lot of wealthy families at this time. What we do know is that Robert Benson Davis, having been born in 1843, got married in 1881 to a much younger woman named Jenny Weed Davis. And at some time, by 1908, many members of the Weed family, of Jenny's family, had moved into 330 Riverside Drive with the couple. And they increasingly began to agitate for Jenny to prove that the much older Robert was somehow mentally feeble or unfit to run the household and therefore his fortune. And they actually tried to have him ruled mentally unsound in 1908 and have him committed. When they failed at that, Jenny arranged to have him locked on the fourth floor of 330 Riverside Drive until 1910. So for well over a year, he was locked in his own home by his in-laws as they tried to take over by force the fortune that he had built in baking powder and other chemicals. And there was a story where he actually tried to escape and wrote a letter and dropped it out the window, right? Yes. So in a desperate attempt to get help, he addressed a letter to a friend in the city and he dropped it out his window because obviously Jenny and her family weren't going to mail a letter for him. And he believed, we're not sure how true this is, he believed that he was being spied on at all times. But he was somehow able to write and sneak a letter out the window of the house that landed on the sidewalk, was found by a passerby and actually put in the mailbox. And it got to his friend who then executed a very dramatic escape for Robert from the home. Apparently, we're not sure how much of this is true and how much of this is just made up for the press. But supposedly, the friend and some of his friends showed up dressed as doctors and nurses and hauled him out of the house as if he was a patient. Robert ended up taking a train all the way to Los Angeles in secret. And from California, he sued for divorce from his wife, Jenny. Now, interestingly, he was not able to win a divorce because the state of California said, that since he wasn't a resident of California, they had no jurisdiction there. So in retaliation, Jenny then countersued trying to get a separate financial settlement with Robert, whereby she would get a massive monthly allowance and she could continue to live the way she'd been living without the inconvenience of having this husband hanging around. That lawsuit failed as well. And then quite awkwardly, Jenny simply returned home with Robert and they lived out the rest of their lives at 330 Riverside Drive, almost as if nothing had ever happened. But she died before he did, which I find fascinating. So it didn't really all work out in the end, right? Correct. In 1915, um, five years before her much older husband, Robert, died in 1920, and the house ended up passing to their sole daughter, Lucretia. And his daughter lived in the house until, say, the 1930s. Now, this is what's interesting to me. So what was happening to this particular neighborhood, this lovely, elegant, really Gilded Age neighborhood? What was happening to it by the 1920s and 1930s? What was happening to these mansions, like the Davis Mansion? All along, what we were talking about before, Riverside Drive developing as this new mansion district is almost an answer to Fifth Avenue and Madison Avenue, that never really got off the ground the way the developers thought it would. Beautiful as Riverside Drive is and beautiful as Riverside Park is, and as wealthy as the residents who moved onto the boulevard really were, it never really developed the way people expected. It was never quite as exclusive. It was always considered too separate from the center of Gilded Age society to function as a is a viable alternative to Fifth Avenue. So by the 1920s, 30s, 40s, 50s, this entire district and indeed all of the Upper West Side went into a, a steady but notable decline. A lot of these large old mansions, many of which couldn't sell, began to be chopped up into apartments and boarding houses and cheap hotels. The entire neighborhood, for a very brief moment, a glittering piece of the Gilded Age, really became a a residential backwater almost on the west side of the island. And with that, Keith and I are going to take a break, but we'll be back because there's so much more to this story. 
I know how to run a hair salon, but for small business insurance, I chose my State Farm agent. She's a small business owner too, so she knew how to help me personalize my policies. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. Talk to an agent today. This is a big year. The Ohio Lottery's golden anniversary. 50 years of excitement, of growing jackpots and crossed fingers. 50 years of funding for schools, of changed lives and brightened days. 50 years of fun, and that is worth celebrating. So watch for can't-miss promotions, huge events, and new games that will make the Ohio Lottery's 50th year its biggest one yet. Learn more at funturns50.com. Want to connect with a family member who doesn't speak your language? Then check out the language learning program Rosetta Stone on desktop or as an app. Rosetta Stone is designed to immerse you in the language you're learning through an intuitive process. Plus, the True Accent feature even gives you feedback on your pronunciation. And with a lifetime membership, you have access to all 25 offered languages. Get started today. Visit rosettastone.com backslash pod 50 to get 50% off your lifetime membership now. That's rosettastone.com backslash pod 50 for 50% off. And we're back. I'm Carl Raymond, the host of the Gilded Gentleman History Podcast. And today, historian Keith Talion has joined me for a look at real estate in the Gilded Age. So, Keith, for our next mansion, we are really going way uptown at this point, at least by Gilded Age standards, to a location that's really part of today's Harlem. And our year would be the late 1880s, 1888, and the spot would be the northeast corner of 150th Street and St. Nicholas Place, number 10 St. Nicholas Place to be exact. And this was the James Bailey Mansion, and it still exists today. So can you talk a little bit about James Bailey? Well, who was he? Many listeners may actually realize they do know who he was. Correct. James Bailey is actually the Bailey of Barnum and Bailey Circus. He was the mastermind behind P.T. Barnum's success as a circus master. So while James Bailey doesn't get quite the same level of press, there's no musical movie starring Hugh Jackman about James Bailey. But James Bailey really did quite well for himself running a circus empire. Now, obviously very wealthy. Can you talk about this area? Gosh, we are way far away from the Upper West Side now. But this was, at that point, a very desirable area. Why was that? For a very specific reason. As you mentioned, the address for this mansion is number 10, St. Nicholas Place. St. Nicholas Place is not a street many New Yorkers have probably ever heard of. It only stretches for a few blocks from about 149th Street up to 155th Street. And the attraction of St. Nicholas Place was indeed its proximity to the Harlem Speedway, which was, it still is a street today for cars, but originally it was the first purpose-built racetrack or raceway, essentially what we would consider a highway or freeway today, but for horses back in the 19th century. And that speedway ran and still runs from 155th Street on the on the banks of the Harlem River all the way up to Dykeman Street at the end of Manhattan Island. And that speedway was one of the most attractive places for lovers of horses and carriages and racing to go and enjoy a day out in the country watching some of the nation's finest horses race back and forth. St. Nicholas Place stretched south from the starting point of the Harlem Speedway to about 149th or 150th Street and became a very attractive place for a very specific subset of wealthy New Yorker to build their home where they could not only enjoy the beautiful views over the Bronx and the Harlem River, but also to be in close proximity to that race course. Now, the Bailey Mansion has a very different style of architecture from what we just saw with the Davis Mansion. Can you talk a little bit about that? Yeah, it's built in a very elaborate pseudo-Romanesque style with rounded arches, but it's very heavily embellished with deep porches, a round tower with a conical top sticking off of one of the corners. The home really takes advantage of its location on a corner lot at 150th and St. Nicholas Place, designed by Samuel B. Reed. It is embellished with towers and turrets and cones in the roof and a very elaborate gable design on each facade acknowledging the fact that people approaching from all four directions would have had a really dramatic view of this home sitting on a ridge overlooking the Harlem River. 
And the interior of the house has some really remarkable decorative elements, too, including significant stained glass. Was the increase of using stained glass in interiors the result of the work of Tiffany? Yes, very much. By this point, using glass in decoration was very much a part of domestic architecture during the Gilded Age. It was as much of a brag or a financial flex as it was to have expensive artwork or expensive pianos or organs installed in your house. Uh, The glasswork that you had installed not only displayed your artistic taste, but it also displayed your ability to afford something artistic for your home. So another way to show off, right? Exactly. Now, Bailey and his wife lived in the house, it seems, not all that long, really about 11 years. And then they moved out of New York up to their summer home in Mount Vernon in 1899. But there was speculation, actually, that he became disenchanted with the neighborhood because it wasn't really developing the way he thought it would. Can you address that? Was he correct? And if people were disenchanted with the neighborhood, why? Yeah, so ultimately, despite there being about a half dozen mansions built there around 150th Street in St. Nicholas Place, it did not develop into the uptown alternative to Fifth Avenue. Similar to Riverside Drive, it was thought that St. Nicholas Place would be a kind of a coming together point for other wealthy people in their mansions. That simply didn't prove to be the case. Ultimately, what happened was speculative developers began putting up apartment buildings along St. Nicholas Place and nearby Edgecombe Avenue and other streets nearby, turning this into a dense, less rarefied district of apartment dwellers and middle-class New Yorkers rather than uh, a district of resplendent mansions that Bailey expected it to be. And as we get into the 20th century, what happened to that mansion? It's still there today. Yeah, it is still there today. It was actually held in private hands, though Bailey sold it off pretty quickly after building it. It was held in private hands into the 1950s, at which point it was converted into a funeral home, which from a historic perspective, I love funeral homes because they're some of the only businesses that like to keep an old-fashioned interior on a home. So where this home maybe in any other hands would have been demolished or at the very least gutted of all of its elaborate uh, woodwork and glass inside, Because it was a funeral home, it was left almost untouched for the next half century or more until it was sold in 2009 to a family and it's been converted back for single-family residential use today. It's so exciting to hear a story like that, right? To see once a grand mansion that is now returned to a single family that it's and is who's restoring it. Yeah, it's so rare to see a mansion of this caliber and scale from this period, not only still standing, but fully intact and still used for its original purpose. So many of them have either been torn down or handed over for more institutional use. So for our last mansion, and gosh, there were so many more we could talk about, but for our last mansion, we're going to go back downtown or at least to an area of Manhattan that we know as the Upper East Side today. You alluded to it earlier, but our last mansion's location is really kind of unique. But but first of all, I really want to ask, you mentioned it earlier, but why were there so many Gilded Age mansions that were really built along the Upper East Side, sort of from the 70s into the 90s? Why was that? Yeah, almost by, I think I used this phrase before, an accident of geography. Fifth Avenue and Madison Avenue just happened to run down the middle of Manhattan Island at a safe enough distance away from the riverfronts where all the industry and hospitals and glue factories and whatnot were clustered, Fifth and Madison Avenue were two of the only avenues on the island that were not encroached upon by the degradation of industry and commerce, at least not to an extent that the other streets in the city were at this time. And so as high society made their way up the island, they tended to stick to that narrow channel between Fifth and Madison Avenue as they made their way north. And especially by the time you get to 59th Street, Fifth and Madison sit very nicely and snugly against the east side of Central Park, which only made them more attractive for wealthy people as they made their way uptown. Sure, because you were near the open space of Central Park, right? So everybody wants to be near open space. That was another draw, correct? Correct. The open space, but also you're near to society. Everyone that you and your family knows and socializes with, you're all already there. So this is part of the reason why Riverside Drive didn't fully succeed where as they intended. Wealthy people wanted to be where they knew and they wanted to be near people that they knew. And so they stuck to the streets that they knew. 
So for our last mansion, we're going to look at one that I know is a favorite of both of ours, and that's the great mansion of Andrew Carnegie, and it's on Fifth Avenue at 91st Street. Now, this was built in 1903, and Carnegie was really one of the great titans of the Gilded Age. Can you give us just a little background of who Carnegie was? Yeah, Carnegie was a Scottish immigrant. He got very wealthy as part of the general industrialization of the nation in the years after the Civil War, a.k.a. the Gilded Age, um, in steel and rail and everything else that went into turning the United States into an industrial power. Andrew Carnegie, at a relatively young age, became quickly one of the most wealthy and powerful men in the entire nation. From a personal perspective, he put so much of himself into building that fortune that he neglected, essentially, to get married and build a family until quite late in life. He didn't get married until 1887 when he married Louise Whitfield, and by that time, Carnegie was already over 50 years old. And then it took Andrew and Louise a decade to have their first and only child, a daughter named Margaret, who was born in 1897. And so that, in essence, was the issue for Andrew and the reason that he built this new mansion that we're going to talk about in just a second is that he wanted to build a house that allowed him to live in the kind of domestic bliss that he had always denied himself up until this point. But he built this, and this is what I find so interesting. This is still pretty far uptown, 91st Street, even in 1903. Why did he build so far uptown? Yeah, he really wanted to build a compound for himself and his little family that was far enough away from society and from the centers of commerce where his business had been built that he could focus on what he now in his rapidly advancing age felt was more important, his wife and his daughter. And so he very quietly in the late 1890s, I believe beginning in 1898, started to, through masked companies and and not using his name, began to buy up all the Fifth Avenue block fronts actually between 89th Street and 92nd Street. He bought those three blocks so that he could build his house in the middle of them and then have some control and say over what sort of buildings and what sort of people moved in around him so that he could control this domestic environment that he was creating for himself. Now, when we look at some of these other mansions that we've talked about, this particular mansion is pretty plain, certainly by Gilded Age standards. Can you talk a little bit about that architecture and why did Carnegie choose to make it so dare I say, simple. (laughs) It's funny to call a mansion of this scale simple, but it really is architecturally the truth when you look at his mansion compared to many of the others built at the same time. It's made of brick rather than more expensive marble or granite, which he could have afforded quite easily. But apparently what he directed his architect to build was, quote, the most modest, plainest, and most roomy house in New York. He wanted a large house, but not one that was wasteful in any real way. And so the house, while it is grand and it sits on a massive piece of land facing Fifth Avenue, it was really simply meant to be comfortable. And what I love about this is you can see it today. You can go in that house. It's now the Cooper Hewitt Museum of Design with the Smithsonian, right? And you can see, despite the exhibits and things that are in the in the museum, you can still see the bones of that house inside, right? Correct. All the woodwork, all the paneling, the amazing grand staircase, they're all there for you to look at. There's even one room that's fully made out of teak, very elaborately carved teak wood is in one of the gallery rooms. And what I love about the house specifically is that the massive garden that surrounds the house, the full block front between 90th and 91st Street, that garden that Carnegie specifically sought so that his daughter would have a nice place to play, kind of laughably right across the street from Central Park, that garden is now open to the public when you visit the museum. And there's a coffee shop back there so you can take a coffee and a pastry or a sandwich and sit in the garden that Andrew Carnegie built for his family today in the 2020s. It's one of my favorite things to do on the Upper East Side. So, Keith, I do want to end our talk today with my trademark gilded gentleman question, although you get two parts to it, as some of my guests do. So when you look at these mansions that we've talked about today, was there one of them that you would like to have called home? Of the ones that we talked about today, I honestly think I would love to live in the James Bailey Mansion up at 150th Street. Why? It is just the most grand, elaborate house. And I think I really am drawn to the unexpected nature of it. You don't expect to find this elaborate, Romanesque, turreted home 
all the way uptown in neighborhoods more commonly known for their apartment buildings and brownstones. It's just such a unique house. I simply love how unexpected the house is. Now, if you could build your own home in any area of Manhattan, let's just pick a random time, say 1900, where would you build your house and what would it look like? I am a West Side boy my entire life in Manhattan has been lived mostly west of Broadway, at least west of Fifth Avenue. And so I've always been more drawn to Riverside Drive than I've been drawn to Fifth Avenue. Apologies to anybody who's loyal to the East Side. I love you just as much as the West Side. But I think if I had to build a house somewhere in Manhattan during the Gilded Age, it would be on Riverside Drive just to get those open vistas over the Hudson River, those breezes with the horses and carriages clip-clopping past the house. Stylistically, I think I'd build something akin to the Bailey Mansion, but sited on a rise of Riverside Drive overlooking the river. Well, maybe if you could just pick up the Bailey Mansion and plop it on the Upper West Side, you'd have the perfect situation, right? I, I haven't knocked on the door to ask the owners how they'd feel about that, but we'll see. Maybe one day. Oh, gosh, Keith. Once again, you have covered so, so much, and I'm so grateful. Thank you so much for joining me again on The Gilded Gentleman for this show today. Thank you very much. It was a pleasure being here, and I hope to be back again soon. Oh, I think you'll just have to come back. Can we plan another show? Absolutely. Oh, perfect. My listeners, don't forget to listen to my earlier show with Keith, episode number 44, Chasing the Gold, a Gilded Age tour up Manhattan. And to find Keith, do follow his extraordinary Instagram account for wonderful posts on all aspects of New York City history at Keith York City. And to take one of Keith's wonderful in-depth tours in person, go to his website, keithyorkcity.com, and sign up for his newsletter. And to stay connected to The Gilded Gentleman, follow me on Instagram at Carl the Gilded Gentleman, where you will find archival images of the subjects that we discuss on each episode. And for monthly updates on what I'm up to, sign up for my newsletter at www.thegildedgentleman.com. I invite my listeners to become patrons of the show at patreon.com slash thegildedgentleman. Your support truly helps me manage the costs of producing and creating the show. An enormous thank you to my patrons. I could not do it without you. And I'll see you soon. After all, what's life without a little glint of gold? This is a big year. The Ohio Lottery's golden anniversary. 50 years of excitement, of growing jackpots and crossed fingers. 50 years of funding for schools, of changed lives and brightened days. 50 years of fun. And that is worth celebrating. So watch for can't-miss promotions, huge events, and new games that will make the Ohio Lottery's 50th year its biggest one yet. Learn more at funturns50.com.